It's so easy to get lost in the stuff we're building, the technical, the operational, the engineering and the art and the content and lose the fact of like what we're doing is crafting an experience that's supposed to be engaging. Um, and that that dichotomy could be helped if you were playtesting regularly or if you if you focus when you started dealing with that hard to do technology, if you were like, well, shoot, let's see. Let's focus on playtesting it sooner rather than building it out more and understand if it's good because then you can cut your losses early if it's not good. Welcome to Building Better Games, where we dive into what matters most in game development, leaders, and culture. Your hosts are Aaron Smith and Benjamin Carsage. Aaron and Ben are two veteran game industry leaders who have served a global audience of gamers and want to change how games are made. Welcome to the Building Better Games podcast. Uh, this may or may not be the first one of the reskinned, remastered, retitled podcast uh, coming from the Valarin perspective, but thank you for joining us. Um, we've learned a lot from all of you. Thanks for your feedback and kind of about ourselves and, and what this podcast is really about mm -hmm. over the last year. And so we decided to, to kind of level things up and do a V2, you know, based on the kinds of guests that we're having in here and the kind of conversations we're having and that Ben and I are consummate game developers at the end of the day. And, you know, all of our consulting work and, and coaching work is focused in the games industry. Um, we realized that this actually is a games industry podcast. And so that is what we will be focusing on moving forward. Um, and I guess with, with more or less just a renewed vigor, I don't think anything's really going to change that much about our approach. Um, we're just kind of unabashedly calling out what, what this actually is. And we're really excited to share that with you all. So today's topic to kick things right off is, and you know, it's interesting. I have a perspective on this as a gamer and as a game developer, what does it mean for a company, a game company and the people that work for it to have a relationship with the product? a positive relationship mm -hmm. and what are the impacts that a positive relationship with the product can have uh, or the negative impacts it can have. Um, you know, a practical example off the top of my head is I often, I often play games on steam and, and now we live in this world where early access and pre alpha and all this, uh, I, baloney was the word that came to mind. But, stuff, uh, all know, this that's, stuff. It's another topic for another day. Um, I play a lot of these games and I, I feel like over the years I've been trained to be more okay with buggier software. And I know there's a whole, just a whole background mm -hmm. set of reasons why that's the case, but it's a frustration point and I often wonder how much these companies are playing their own products and if they actually realize how buggy they really are. And again, there's a million constraints and timetables and project plans and things right. like that you have to deal with when you're actually making this stuff. But I, but I really want to, you know, again, pivot things back to what does it mean to have a, an effective relationship with a product? Yeah. Um, or an effective relationship with the game that you're making as leaders in games. Um, and so we're going to we're going to dig into that. Yeah, I think I think the place where I kind of wanted to start with here, it's it's interesting. Um, it's play tests. It's internal play tests. Uh, and that's a very pragmatic thing I'm starting with. Um, but it's so. It's telling about a company. How often and how comfortable they are with playtests. I think what they're playtesting for as well. What yes, they think yes. what they think the purpose of a playtest is. Yeah. Yeah. And and um you know we've we've worked with some companies that seem to not really do a ton of playtesting uh, where it's very infrequent. 
uh, sort of like the once a quarter, once every six months or something like that. And we've also uh, worked with companies where it's like an everyday thing. And one of the things that's interesting is I think when you're looking at behaviors that are likely to lead your team to being successful every day, those, those companies that test every day, that play test every day, seem to have so many more of the right behaviors. And, you know, is there's a chicken and an egg thing there, and we're going to talk through some of that, um, because I think having a play test every day encourages the right behaviors. And simultaneously, if you have the right behaviors and the right culture and the right sort of incentives in your structure, in your organization, um, play testing every day just makes more sense. Uh, in the vast majority of cases. I also wonder how this fits in, which is, you know, I look at a couple examples off the top of my head, League of Legends and its origins, mm-hmm. um, or Dota 2 as a an ancillary product. Um, there's player unknown battlegrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, this world we're in, where more and more of these top tier games are coming from folks that don't have a traditional game dev background mm-hmm. that, that they're just hardcore gamers by definition leading into gracefully or ungracefully <laughs> leading into a world where they're building games. And, and what is it about that that's creating better products? Because certainly, you know, your mind gravitates immediately towards their relationship with the product as gamers, as people mm-hmm. who play games first. There's so, so I think that's part of this too. Um, another thing we can touch on, which is like, what does it mean to be a gamer first and a game developer second? That almost felt a little controversial as it came out of my mind or uh, out of my yeah. mouth, pardon me. Um, but it, I, I actually, I think if I ask myself, if I'm authentic and I, I speak honestly, I'm a gamer first, a game developer second. I think I don't always mm. admit that I think yeah. there are some I think there are some days where I feel like more of a game developer than a gamer. Um, but I think when I'm at my best, I'm a gamer first and a game developer second. That's an yeah. interesting piece of this too. Yeah, and that, you know, to that's a little bit broader than the play test, though it certainly applies, because to be able to play a play test and like that that may give you an understanding of okay, what's our product? Mm-hmm. Um, the more you understand the products around your product, the better off you're going to be. And it's, it, I don't, sometimes that gets really controversial. Um, you know, do we, do we only want people who are gamers in our company or something like that? Um, and we've both seen that, um, more than once. Um, but broadly it's, if I take it away and I just say like, well, if you're working on a product, wouldn't you want to know? about the competitors in the space. Not mm-hmm. that you need to copy them, but and, and not so that you can be threatened by them or anything like that. Just so you can be familiar with what's out there. Um, yeah. Because you never know, like there, there's all sorts of innovation that may come from combining ideas from different competitors or and being aware. And, it, and it, it puts you in touch with the audience. And I think that's something that so many people in game dev have so much more naturally because not everybody, and I don't think it has to be everybody, but um, most people that I met in game development, that I've met in game development, continue to be in game development, are gamers. And they have a deep and long-running passion for games. And having that makes their experiences playtesting more relevant because they are more like the audience than not. Well, back to your what you were talking about earlier, there is this, like when we're talking about play tests, there is this like, well, how often should they happen? How should they work? Mm-hmm. What's the process around it? But, you know, when we're talking about this idea of identity and sort of posture, for lack of a better term, how do you approach the play test? So you work for a game company, you all sit down at some interval and you test the game. To your point, I feel like which hat you're deliberately wearing or which one is sort of your prime primary hat actually affects a lot of what you see and how you see it. Mm-hmm. So like there's been times where I've been in a company playtest for League of Legends or you know whatever where I've been like this feels bad. 
Like there were three or four features that my team was working on that were in that build that I was responsible for as the leader of those teams. And if I approached it purely as a game developer, I would have been like, well, how's this feature? Did it meet all the checks? Did it, is the product owner going to like what's in here? Or did, did, you know, did my uh, acceptance criteria get into the build or like how close are we to shipping or are we going to make it in time for X patch or whatever, all the random, you know, stuff, stuff that like development stuff, work stuff that's in my head that I'm I'm seeing like you get to the point where you look at the game and it's almost like decoding the matrix like you see the code you forget what it is mm-hmm. you forget that it's a game but if you can sit down and play it and be like this isn't fun or this isn't true to our audience there's something here that's off like I fundamentally understand what the experience is supposed to be and what people want the experience to be and we mess something up here. Or something as simple as just like, again, when you think about each one of the pop-ups that can pop up in a game client and, and whatever time they pop up and whatever they say, if you look at each one of those pop-ups standalone and go like, okay, the copy, the text is correct on it. The box is the right size. It's got the right graphics on it. And you're again, you're deconstructing it in your mind as a game developer and thinking about all the constituent pieces that need to go into the thing. Right. And you're like, okay, it, it's constructed effectively. You, what if there's 40 of them that are popping up at all the wrong times and it just, it's frustrating. Right. To go through the experience. Like even if each one of them is constructed perfectly and it's like that, that sounds nuanced, but I feel like that is a huge difference in the way that you're looking at the product. And and, and I think the whole is different than the sum of the parts and you don't know how until you try to experience it as the whole. The whole is bigger than the sum or greater than the sum of its parts. And I think the whole is more complex I think that there are actually like very abstract layers there. Like again, when you're thinking about pieces, you're not necessarily thinking about the flows of an experience. Yeah. Like Yeah. What's well, it's, it's to, funny because to your point, if you're working on something, does it technically work? Is the question that a developer is prone to ask. And that's on any software, not just games, because that's what you've been thinking about, that's what you've been focusing on, you know, and and I think it, it also means that um, if you make something and it technically works and it seems like it's directionally what you were supposed to be doing and the product owner, you gave a demo or whatever, and the product owner or product person or producer or whoever was like, check, you're good. Um, and then it goes into a play test and someone's like, man, that really ruined my experience. One of the things that is so fascinating is how quickly we might become defensive about that because we have this tendency to attach to the work that we do, to emotionally attach to it. And that person comes in and they're like, hey, I wasn't even thinking about the work you put into this because from an experiential perspective, an engagement perspective, that doesn't matter. I was just experiencing this product as best I could as a player would. And this thing seemed disruptive to it. And they could be right, could be wrong, doesn't matter. For the person doing the work, if they're so focused on is it technically working rather than what's the experience this is providing, it's very easy to immediately become defensive and potentially even argue. Well, I think what you're calling attention to there is there's sort of two fundamental aspects of the physical way as game developers that we engage with products every day. So like a play test is a, is a great example because like a play test is a way that you play the game on some regular basis. Mm-hmm. But what you're calling out is there's two main things. There's the facilities and the mechanisms by which we interact with the game. Mm-hmm. So like if there's a build where all the new stuff regularly gets into the build, so there's like an updated version of the game and I can play it once a week or whatever, that's the physical mechanism by which I interact with the game. But what you're also calling out is that there's a mindset piece too and yeah. a culture, there's a culture piece and a mindset piece around how do you interact with that thing? Yes. Like what mindset should I be? What are you looking for? Why are you here? Exactly. What are you looking for? What is good? Like, let's say we give each other feedback after the play test. What does good feedback look like? Right. Like it presumably we share a set of principles about what 
a good game is and what serving our audience means. And we stay in those boundaries as we're giving feedback. Like, um, you know, I go to the feedback roundup after the playtest, and I'm like, well, this thing sucks because this is my favorite character. And I don't like that you're changing my favorite character. Right. Like that's a not a thoughtful way to engage with your audience. That's a selfish you thing that mm -hmm. may or may like now again, it, again, uh, there, there's some nuance there too, where it's like, you might actually have sparked an interesting conversation because maybe that's a champion or a character or whatever that not that many people care about. Right. It's like an underserved character. And by you calling that out in that moment, you actually did sort of channel all of those people who play that weird esoteric character. Right. And, yeah. and now all of a sudden in the moment in the room, everyone realizes, oh, crap, there's actually, you know, even though it's less than 1% of our total, total audience, it's still, you know, 170,000 people and they're all going to be really upset and feel like we don't care about them. So, like, again, there's a million different angles on this. But again, I think those those two pillars really st stuck out to me. One is how do you actually physically engage with the product? Like, mm -hmm. I know a lot of companies who they only have a functioning build maybe once a quarter. Yep. Or once every three months or once every four months or once, once every three months would be quarter. Sorry. Math is not my strong suit. Um, once a, or a half a year or, or sometimes never. Like only a couple people can sort of crawl over the rubble because the thing's broken so often. Um, so that's not an effective mechanism for engaging. Mm -hmm. Right. And then there's I actually think the mindset and culture piece is probably even more difficult. It's like, even if you yeah. do have access, maybe, I, I don't know, I'm speculating, it'd be interesting to ask um, some other developers if if they see value in doing that every week or every day. And if they don't, why not? Um, and yeah. they have well, something to do with the culture piece, the the mindset piece. And I wanna, I wanna actually tie those together because again, we started with the idea of playtest, right? A playtest, um, we're gonna come together, we're gonna play this experience. Maybe we're playing the part of the campaign that everybody's been working on or whatever, or we're replaying part of the campaign that somebody has gone back and looked at. Um, maybe we're playing a, a, you know, PVP product, right? Where it's five of us versus five of them. And we set that up inside of the organization um, and we play against each other. Could be any, any of a myriad of weight, like products playing it regularly. I want to talk a little bit about how that does, I think, drive healthy behavior and the mindset that relates to that and is is encouraged by it, um, and you know I want to I want to start off with just the idea of um, why do some places or people in your experience not want to do a regular playtest and define regular however you want every two weeks every one week every day whatever it is why is it that some places um, and organizations that you've been a part of been like I don't want to do that. I don't think I've ever seen that before anyone. I think I've seen a lot. I've heard a lot of excuses. Yeah. No. What are the excuses? What are the excuses? Oh, what, oh so, sorry. What are the I excuses thought... like why we can't do a regular play test? Okay. Um, one of them is that the build's broken all the time. Yep. And that, and, and I think that in many cases there, we've seen this, that the organizations perceive that the cost of having it be working regular Right, or having it be working constantly and regularly is 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 far too much of a burden on the operations of the organization. Like, why would we push people to do that? Like, mm -hmm. they what they need, and and again, I think that that's a a traditional trap, developers mentality trap. Are the things getting done? What we need to make sure is that the things are getting done. You know, of course, we're not even going to talk about what done means, right? Yeah. No. Um, but like, have we sort of physically crunched through or chewed up or digested the feature that was given to us? Okay, cool. On to the next feature. On to the next feature. Like an assembly line. And there's a million misguided things that are going on there. Um, I would argue you're not done with any of that stuff until you see it working. Mm -hmm. um, but again, when we... When we talk to companies about this, we tend to get a sympathetic response where they're like, yeah, like I get I get why that would be valuable. Like, no, that makes sense. But like, I don't think you understand, like the build is really busted and it's been really busted for like six months. And like, God knows what it would even require to get it unbusted. Like we yeah. probably have to redo 
half the features that we did already. Well, and, and, and the funny thing is, you, you see the mentality yeah. there is so busted. Like you, you it's, can't it's even. Like, it's, it's you funny. would know you're not redoing those things. You're fixing them. Like they don't yes, work they right worked. now. They're all they never worked. And that, you just so so that one that one is is you know because you're you're right. You get there, and actually you went further down than most people are willing to go. If you follow the logic train that far, most people are like, oh shoot, because everybody realizes, wait, it's only getting worse, and at some point we plan to ship this thing. So yeah. we're gonna have to do this. But at it's some fine. Point. We'll just have one big playtest right at the end. Exactly. After eight months, right? and it's like, and how we'll do you hire think that's seven thousand QA? contractors from all over the world and we'll just throw them at the game there's there's some very serious bizarre human mental gymnastics involved in in <laughs> when we see this happening because it's like yeah we'll just do the big play test you know six months from now or whatever and you're like well if it doesn't work today what do you think is going to happen between now and then that's going to make that better Especially considering the fact that between now and then, the one thing we know you're going to be doing is adding more crap onto it. So, yes. Yes. So what are the chances really? But like, again, I, I feel I'm smiling when I say this because these are real problems that happen. I feel like they're ridiculous, but I, th I think there's something there about an outsider's perspective, right? Like thinking about the holistic framework instead of just being stuck in the yeah. work all day. And so I guess that's a thing for game developers too. We've been there. It's like, you are, like if you find yourself thinking in terms of backlogs and features and bug counts and like the math of it, if you will, mm -hmm. um, and that becomes – and you're so stuck in that that you – you become disconnected from the experience, like that's a problem. And and if and if you physically cannot engage with the experience because the way you work doesn't allow you to see the game. Yeah. Like again, I remember I tell this story a lot, but I remember when I first joined the League client project um, at Riot when we were reskinning the whole League client and. Um, you know, a lot of the infrastructure was still being set up and there was a lot of debate about what infrastructure was valuable and what was not valuable and what needed to be set up now. And again, North American, everyone in that office was North American, right? Mm -hmm. And we had this discussion a lot. We could look at the client in English so we could test it good enough, right? But I remember sitting down and talking to QA, talking to Quality Assurance, and and they were like, hey, we can't see the client in Chinese. So, and as QA, they are far more intimate with a lot of the details around yeah. like, hey, did you know Chinese text is really long? It tends to not fit in comfortably sized North American boxes, just as an example. So if we can't see this stuff, we actually have no idea how broken this experience would be. And if that's an afterthought, oh crap, we just, you know, as you go down this line, you think about the fact that the majority of the players are in China. Well, wait a second. Okay, so we really just made a basic rookie mistake, which is that we catered the way we were looking at the product to our unique circumstances as, as gamers and as developers. And we didn't think about the big picture. Yeah. And so so I think there's like to come back to the idea of like why why is it? What are the excuses that people give? And yeah, there's one that is one. that it's too hard to fix everything to get the build running. Yep. Another one is there's a maintenance cost. And you and I talk about this with yep. continuous integration all the time. There's very obviously a maintenance cost to keeping the build unbroken enough to be playable. I mean, if you're playtesting every day, like there is a a thick layer of organizational overhead that goes into keeping that build functioning every day. And there was a constant at Riot, there was a constant conversation around absorbing the cost of that and like whether yes. it was worth and it. And by the way, like the more effort you put into that system, the lower that overhead, Correct. Um, which is interesting to note. Correct. The less effort you put into it, like if you want to play test every day, that requires you to do things to have a build ready every day. And you can brute force that or you can invest 
in automation and other things that make that something that's more regularly feasible. And that seems like tons of work. And all I've ever seen that do is save time long-term. Well, and um, by the way, it's worth noting because you just touched on a key thing. The principle behind that was we want to. It's very, very deeply important to us as an organization that we're testing the game all the time, that yes. we're playing League of Legends all the time. And since that's the root of the conversation around the cost Mm -hmm. of the engineering work or whatever that goes into setting up that that system, um, it helps inform how much effort is worth it. Yeah. And like, wanna... I think a lot of – one of the mistakes I see a lot of more tech-focused companies go into this conversation with is they don't have that principle around – seeing the product or testing the product every day or whatever necessarily it's inferred through the way that they approach the engineering work but it's not the end of the line like we are we like we're drawing a line here we're play testing every day and so they go in and they're like well how much effort do we put in and it, that becomes a much more difficult question to answer mm -hmm. like cuz to your point if we're testing every day that means the build has to be working and ready every day, which means that there's a certain amount of bare minimum work required to keep that true. And if that work is a lot, then we're going to be way more willing to invest the automation work or whatever needs to go into that to thin that layer down so it doesn't cost so much. But again, it's all looking back at that we need to play test every day. Because if, well, so if all of a sudden we said we only need to play test once a month, maybe now we don't care if it costs a lot. So that I guess the point I'm trying to make there is that that principle is what is key and informs all your decisions, right? Yes. And and actually, so, so I want to go through some of the other rationale and excuses real quick yeah. that I see behind like, why don't we play test regularly? Um, and... So um, build isn't stable. We talked about that one. Um, sometimes it's we're not building the right way. That's not the same as build isn't stable. It may be actually that everybody's often in their own silo. Everybody's like off in their own silo. Um, and they're building a feature without having to worry about any of the other features or parts of the game that are being developed anywhere else. And yeah. so they may maybe there is a stable build and what they do is they just play test their feature in the exclusion of all other work yeah that's like the it's not ready argument exactly uh, i mean there yeah. are very many forms of well, that but the one you're speaking to is it's not ready because the sort of um the collation of all the pieces happens so late in the process Yes. And, and so there's not this like regular, okay, let's see how all the features are doing together. And by the way, there is a balance there, right? If you've got, you know, let's say you're a very large game and you've got a lot of teams working every time somebody has a brand new thing that changes the game. If you all just threw that in, it may actually disrupt the experience, but generally speaking, as a product is being built, you should be seeing it live and in the in the build that you use to play test. Um, so so yeah, so that's not building the right way. There's also just the and this is an emotional thing, I think often more than an actual thing. It's not ready yet. Sometimes that's technical. Um, because when you first I, I mentioned this right before this podcast, when you first start building a game, you don't have anything to play test. Right? Like, okay, we haven't even opened up Unity on our computers yet or or Unreal or whatever. Like we don't have anything to play test. Got it. Um, you should probably be looking for other ways to try to as best you can experience the product, but play testing isn't going to be one of them. Most of the time when I hear not ready yet, it's actually an emotional plea. It's like, I don't want to show this yet. Hey, I'm not sure how this is going to impact. And um, so that that's another one. So there's not ready yet. Build isn't stable, not building the right way or not organized the right way. Um, another one that's so common, especially with how busy game developers are, is... I don't have time. I don't have time to play test every day. Why would we be play testing every day? Do you know that if we play test and that takes half an hour or 15 minutes or an hour and a half out of my work day, that's an hour and a half or 15 minutes that I'm not doing work. And then I'm thinking about just playing the yeah. game instead of getting stuff done. And that one's really common and really tempting. And all of these excuses for not play testing can seem very reasonable um, and are part of the way things are often at organizations or the way people feel or however it is. And I actually want to come back to what you were just talking about, which is what is the right frame to have? What is the why 
behind the playtest. Yeah. Why is it that in your opinion, companies that make games or maybe any software, but especially games, should be playtesting regularly? I mean, there's a lot of different angles on that question, I feel like. But, you know, the frame for this conversation is creating a meaningful relationship with the product. Mm -hmm. And what's implied in that is so that you can serve your customers. Mm -hmm. We talk often about organizational alignment and how organization, like basically, are you and your team on the same page about what you're doing and why? And we talk about, one of the things we talk about is how that is in a constant state of decay. So you have to invest in it on a regular basis to make sure that it just stays neutral, much less goes up over time. The same thing is true between you and your understanding of what your experience in your product is like and you and what the need and desires of your audience are. Mm -hmm. So all of those things are forms of alignment and they're all in constant states of decay. Mm -hmm. Over the time I was at Riot, less and less people as a general rule play tested every day. There was a time in the very beginning where it was it was sacrosanct to not join the playtest. Like you would get scolded appropriately when the company was 50 people, 100 people, like everyone playtested every day. Um, over time, I think the need for that went down. But interestingly enough, you know, the person who playtests the game or plays the game every day and the person who doesn't, their opinions are not weighed the same anymore. And, and it's not because one person's opinion is less valid or because they're less smart or anything like that. It's because their alignment is in a rapidly decaying state mm-hmm. with what the product is and what the audience needs. Another, so, so to me, that's fundamentally why. And again, playtesting is just, is kind of the primo example of this. There are many other ways, I think, in which we stay sure. in touch with our customers. What's interesting is one thing that popped up for me is a way that playtests don't serve that end, which we learned the hard way, is when you are your audience, you can trust that whatever your experience is and deepening your relationship with the game is going to provide you meaningful insights about your customers. Mm-hmm. The moment that you are no longer in the target demographic for your product or the majority demographic for your product, now you and the products are closely knit, but you and your audience are not necessarily. Mm -hmm. This is an interesting thing that happened, right? Hardcore gamers don't play on mobile, right? We said it, we said it, we said it. We said it, yeah. And, And again, it was a reasonable perspective. Like, even now there's a part of me that goes like, man, if you're not playing on a PC, like, I'll kick your ass. Like, like, oh, well, we're playing games, we're playing hardcore games with our fingers now. Is that what we're doing? Like, you know, there's, a, I, I get it. Sorry if you play, everybody out there, if you play mobile games, I you won, I lost. Let's be clear <laughs> about this. I am wrong, okay? But like, there's that old school, I mean, I'm 37 now, right? Like I was playing, you know, EverQuest and Ultima Online on my PC before it was cool, you know, and Diablo 2 on the day it came out and this kind of stuff. So it's like, I'm a PC gamer, right? Like to me, hardcore games are on PC. So when I woke up one day and realized that I was old and that people playing League of Legends were not (laughs) anymore, and that they had different needs, different desires. They had different upbringings. It was a culture shock for me and, and a wake-up call that I had made a bunch of assumptions about what being aligned with them meant. And that was a humbling realization, right? And so that's, that's you know, it was a long-winded answer to your question, but ultimately it's about, I think, being in tune with the needs of your customer and the nature of your product and understanding that those things decay. Every second that you don't pay attention to those things, they decay. And there's multiple, it's like a triangle. There's multiple lines on that triangle and they all decay simultaneously. Well, I, I wanna add into that too. When you approach video game development as a plan driven known quantity, 
-hmm. We are building a game. We know what the game is. We know how the characters are going to interact. We know what models we need to build. We know the maps. We know, like, I'm sure there's creative freedom for people, but generally speaking, this is the game. This is how it works together, and this is how it's all going to be. Bah, that's it. Um, Playtesting becomes less important outside of a general technical reason to make sure that we can start a game if we want to and maintaining that state is useful rather than not which we talked about a little bit with like the build is broken like i'm just gonna say it's always a fallacy you know and you could someone might come at me with like no there was this one time you know like i don't care so often it is a fallacy to say that we know everything to the point where we don't even need to play test because we know how it's going to feel when it all comes together People have been doing that in all forms of entertainment for so long, and it it just doesn't work. I mean, and um, certainly we can both agree it's a very high risk move. Oh, it's like, well, it's, it's, it's a very expensive and high risk move. Yes, and and so one of the things that play testing allows is learning. Uh, it's learning about how is my bit of the overall product interacting with all the other bits of the overall product. What does that experience feel like? Like you were, I love the example of, you know, you're going through some game, like a, let's say a free-to-play game store and pop-ups are happening and different teams have decided that they are going to use pop-ups in the store and you don't realize that like in, someone enters the store and before they can buy anything, they hit 74 pop-ups, you know, or something like that. And it's just this unbelievably frustrating experience that's actually causing you know, everybody's doing it individually with the best of intentions, and the end result is people don't actually spend money on your game and, in fact, hate your game and never go to your store again, yeah. even if they keep playing the and free-to-play the, and product. And the store, the store guys might be like, hey, you know, we put this new pop-up in, and it's increased revenue, bottom line revenue, by 13%. Uh, oh, no, the, no, not even that. Never never like mind that through. the reason people were clicking on the pop-up was to, to – they just bought something real quick to get it out of the way. Right. <laughs> or, yeah. what, or whatever. And it was a frustrating experience for them. And now they're less likely to buy in the future. Again, ridiculous example. Um, well, but, but I can't – I think there's there's real stuff there though. And, and this is also where like what are the metrics that matter, yeah. right? Like what are those – and so when I'm thinking about a play test, it's we want to stay value-oriented. We want to stay as best we can – recognizing that we aren't always, but as best we can close to our audience and we want to stay close to what the product is mm -hmm. in that experience. Um, you know, the, there sh it should be something, if you're making a quality product, there, if there's people at your company that are in your target audience or like the genre of game that you're creating, they should be excited to play it. And if they're not, you should be asking why not? Um, and and play tests help reveal that. They help yeah. you learn about what's going on. And that is, by the way, also, you know, I want to I want to talk about like, so we talked about, hey, these are the reasons why a play test, why the excuses why we don't do play tests regularly, you know, don't have time, not ready yet, build isn't stable, organizations not sort of oriented the right way, we're not building things the right way so that we actually have a whole, we're not doing vertical slices effectively, our end to end slices. Um, if those things aren't present, then these are excuses why we're not playtesting regularly. The purpose of the playtest is to stay connected um, to the product and to the customer. You, anybody who says they don't have time to do that, the implication there to me is not oh, almost always, you are spending too much time thinking about the stuff and the operations and the technical did it work or not, than you are thinking about how is this impacting the value proposition of this game? Yeah, I would the also engagement. venture to say that your definition of quote unquote, did it work is based on engineering. It's based on did yes. the pieces fit exactly. in the appropriate locations as opposed to did it work, is it valuable? Did it work, is it fun? Did it work? Yes. Is it engaging? Did it right. work? Are people happy about it? Like those those things to me are a far better did yeah. it work. Well, and, and you know, we've seen things too. I think you and I can both think of examples um, where a technology, some feature, right, was based on a technology that was much harder than we thought it was going to be to develop. It wasn't being play tested because it was so hard to develop. And then all this effort went into it and you sort of hit sunk cost. And when it shipped, Nobody really asked, like, wait, did this add or subtract to the overall experience of the game? Um, we were just so excited that it was done 
and we shipped it and we weren't like, wait a minute, was is this valuable? Are players going to enjoy this? And it's so easy to fall into that trap because we do attach to the work because in the end, developers and teams are building stuff. Mm-hmm. And we can, it's so easy to get lost in the stuff we're building, the technical, the operational, the engineering and the art and the content and lose the fact of like what we're doing is crafting an experience that's supposed to be engaging. Um, and that that dichotomy could be helped if you were playtesting regularly or if you if you focus when you started dealing with that hard to do technology if you were like well shoot let's see let's focus on playtesting it sooner rather than building it out more and understand if it's good because then you can cut your losses early if it's not good it there's something i think that's really important that just came up for me to talk about when we're talking again about meaningfully connecting with your product as a game developer and meaningfully connecting with your audience. This is a strategic thing, but the lesson has not been lost on me since, which is that one thing we have to take for granted in our industry and as gamers is that so much of this truly is, I'll know it when I see it. Or Mm. so much of this is feel. Like if you put the new Battlefield game in front of me and you have me play it and I'm like enjoying it or frustrated in certain moments and enjoying in others, like it would take a very skilled, probably very scientifically oriented, psychologically oriented person to draw out of me the specifics of what I liked about it and what I didn't like about it from a thematic point of view. So, for example, you know, the the feel of the firing of the guns was like, I'm not going to just speak that way. You know what I mean? I'm just going to be like, it was fun. I really enjoyed it. Or, you know, like I really like I might be able to speak to a couple things, but like whatever I can speak to articulately is going to be a small subset of what my actual experience actually was. And what's interesting is there's a perfect example of this from my experience deving on League of Legends which is that one of the things that we realized as developers on League of Legends strategically um, after some time was that the path to mastery, this might sound stupid to people who hear this now, the path to mastery, i.e. your growth as a player and sort of this infinite skill curve was one of the major draws of mm-hmm. engagement mm-hmm. to the game, the thing that kept bringing you back. There was, o- you could always get a little bit better at League of Legends every time. And that was almost like limit. I mean, you look at the guys at the top, you know, to, to as a quick anecdote, we did a thing at a company party early on where we had our best players at the company play against pro players. And I remember everyone talking, being like, oh my gosh, we made the best team. These guys are really good. They're like, and it wasn't because they were designers, they were good. Like these guys were like really top tier players before they came to Riot. Mm -hmm. And then we pitted them against pros. And it was an absolute slaughter. Like it wasn't even close. And so- You can always get better. You can always get better. And, and- and and that those gaps are massive and that that intimacy you could have with the game went ran deep. And so again, we realized strategically that that was a huge part of the draw. I don't remember us talking about that in strategic circles at Riot until 2014, 2015. So this mm-hmm. is about five mm-hmm. years after the game launched. We knew it was fun. We knew it was a good game. We played it, we got it. But could we articulate that in terms of company strategy? Did we have the sort of like the technology, if you will, to unpack that Mm. in clear and concise terms? This is really important, actually, because what this says is like what your game is and knowing your game and knowing your product and knowing your audience is never going to be a bullet point list that you can just make, that you can just regurgitate onto a piece of paper. There's a human, psychological, emotional thing there that if you're not playing that game, if you're not a member of that audience in some capacity, something will be missed because this isn't, it cannot be recorded in, 
exchanged in terms of documentation. And so the, it, there's- And that's relevant to the product. It's always gonna be some percentage of feel. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, that and feel, the fact that, that, yeah. that certain games have been out a decade plus, and probably the developers are still learning and deepening their understanding of what the game is and why it's got such a draw, should show you that the only way they could have got to that point was by deeply understanding their product from a human emotional perspective and going, I don't know what this is, but we're going to do more of that. You know, you, you know, I play, I play um, mostly shooters these days with, with some variety. Although my shooter friends would say I play mostly card games. Um, but you know, most, still mostly shooters, mostly an FPS guy. And um, something about Bungie products that's been so interesting. Bungie products always feel good to shoot. I, I don't know what it is. Like there's something about when you pick up Destiny or Halo or something and you like headshot an, an enemy and you know, they die or Destiny like their head vanishes in a puff of smoke and um, whatever it is, it, it's like, oh, something about that just felt crisp and good. And I can't tell you what it is because if I go and I play like an Armor 2 mod, right? If I go play DayZ, right, on an Armor 2, the shooting doesn't feel good, right? I'm not, you're not playing DayZ, uh, what was that, like six years ago or something, or I guess longer. Long yeah, six or seven years ago. Yeah. Um, you're not playing DayZ because like the shooting mechanics and the feel is really good. But I couldn't tell you exactly what it is. There's something about the smoothness of how the reticle and the, the way the gun moves on the screen and all this other stuff. And I, What's by the way, it's worth noting, I still, there's a whole genre that has emerged, I think, from the experiences that people had early on with mods like DayZ. Um, and that sur the survival genre is huge now. There's a new survival game that comes out every month. And I still do not feel, and again, maybe I'm in the wrong circles, but I do not feel like I've, I hear a lot of people clearly articulating what the value prop is for those games. And there's a lot of clawing around in the dark to figure out which yes. aspects are the well, critical and ones it, and which ones are not and, so necessary. And it's localized to each product. Yeah. You know, um, because in Bungie, the guns feel very different than another game I play and still play years after it came out, Battlefield 1. It's this old like World War One massive, you know, it's a Battlefield game. So it's got like mm -hmm. the massive populations on both sides, 32 on 32, and we're running at each other, guns blazing or whatever. Um, the gunplay feels very different from bungee shooters, from Destiny, let's say, but it feels right for Battlefield 1. And man, that, like, if you went and you talked with particular designers, maybe they could tell you like, yeah, this is why that is, or this is all the little numbers that we put around how the, the reticle sways or the, the weapon on screen moves or how you turn and what that means. It's so subtle and it's unique to each product. And if you're to come back to the idea of playtesting and staying in touch with your product, if I was only ever liked games that felt like Destiny, I would be upset when I played Battlefield 1, if I didn't understand its context and what it was trying to feel like. Um, but when I go and play Battlefield 1, it fits inside of its, its game experience. And this is playtesting requires you it, it builds your understanding of the product and it helps you stay connected to the audience that you're trying to serve, your, your, your players. It also is less useful if you don't know what the product is supposed to be, if you don't know what the feel is supposed to be. And this is something else that I think is a, is a big deal um, for, for doing a play test. And maybe one of the reasons some people don't is because they don't know that. What is your experience? What is your project? What is your product? What is it that you want the engagement to be like? Um, what do you want people walking away to say? Should they say that was fun? Should they say I want to play more? Should they say um, that was scary? Should they say, wow, I feel like I learned a lot? Like all these things could be valid answers depending on your game. And you have to communicate that um, at some point or you need to hear what they're saying and recognize if it is or is not what you wanted to hear. And then, and then you can actually like work through that. And so you come back to this idea of like play testing, you gotta know the value, you gotta know the vision of the product, and then you can start understanding, okay, is this providing the experience I want? Mm -hmm. um, and this was something, when I was working on, a, on an FPS um, at Riot uh, that eventually became Valorant, there were a lot of discussions about like, how should this feel? And it was really tough because everybody came at it with their 
preconceived FPS biases. You know, I'm a like I like Halo and and Battlefield and you know so games some games that are more in that space uh, with a little bit of like Rogue Spear from ancient days and stuff like that thrown in there. A lot of those people like Counter Strike. It was like, well, how do we want Valorant to feel? And now, you know, it's a game that's more like Counter Strike uh, than Halo, so it's probably going to feel more like that. How far does it have to feel exactly like Counter Strike? What should be different? What are the things that Counter Strike kind of takes too far that if we brought to a broader audience wouldn't be right? And those are really hard because we bring our biases. And I to imagine it. I imagine a team going through that process and having that conversation and writing that all down. Oh man. In a document, in a design document and being like, well, you know, it should be like this, but not like this. And so we agreed on these four things. And it's like, I, again, after, especially now during this conversation, I feel more and more confident that like that just isn't the, everyone there in that circle, if you will, is doing their best to describe what they want, what their ideal experience is, how good how good things feel to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the reality is the rubber only meets the road when you come up with something, you play it, and then you hear how people felt after they played it or while they're or you see what they're doing while they play it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's such a huge gap between the words and our ability to articulate our emotions and how we experience something and the reality of what we're experiencing. Yeah. You know, it's like we had by the time I left Riot, we had a team of neuroscientists, basically, <laughs> you know, like figuring all this stuff out. And it was phenomenal well, <laughs> to watch them work. The, the, In some the, ways, they weren't even figuring it out. They were just trying to frame it and almost sometimes well, saying they, like... They, they knew, they created the guardrails where it's like, well, when somebody says this and when they, they, they would help you understand the dichotomy between a person's words and actions. Exactly. Right. Like that was always super complicated and like a whole area. I just like was like, I can't even get into that because that's like a whole separate thing. But like, again, little things like the goofy like headsets they put on. Eye tracker stuff. Yeah. Where you track your eye movement and all this. It's like things that somebody could never communicate to you if you surveyed them after they used your product. Right. Rate this from one to ten. Like it's it's like how how much information are you actually getting from that? That comes back to that idea of if you were a, if you're making a product and you have people at your company that like the genre of the product you're making, Mm -hmm. do they want to play your game? Do they want to play the game you're making? Because if the answer is not very many of them, then you may have made a niche product or not a good product. Um, If it's a lot of them, maybe you're making a good product. Um, So I want to jump to the individual level just a smidge, because we just talked about this like organizationally. Okay, here's a play test. Here's a lot of excuses why they don't happen. Here's what they're actually for. Learning, connection to customer or player, um, and connection to product so that you are able to, when you go back to work, make better decisions day to day. And also to, to, in some sense, help continue to not let people get locked into the operational, the engineering side of things. Which, by that, the way, as Ben often says, is critical. Like, at some point, we have to make stuff, right? Like, and we have to have all yes. the skills and knowledge and experience to physically build very complex technology. It is like at some point, you need to build the bridge, and that involves laying down steel girders, understanding load, like all this stuff, right? Like, it's important. We don't want to diminish the importance of that, but it is necessary, but not sufficient is what we're trying to communicate. Yes. And it, and it needs to be in that proper frame and play testing can help keep your team and organization connected to that proper frame. So at an individual level, um, we, we alluded to the conversation earlier, um, you know, does everybody need to be a gamer who works for you? And I, I think the answer to that is in an, in an absolute no. sense, no. It's no. And and I think I, one of the things that strikes me is like, okay, well, what does it mean to be a gamer? And like, yeah, like the, there's, a, so, there's a whole, like we, we identified it for the longest time as like, you're a gamer if you self-identify. So if you say, I'm a gamer, you're a gamer, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, p- scooping all that aside for a second... Um, and, and, and I think Riot ran into some degree of controversy about this. Sure. Um, because what I don't like about, hey, you need to be a gamer, is when that's not super well defined and it's not super clear what outcomes you're trying to get from that, it becomes an easy basis for people to discriminate against yes. each other. And and again, I don't think anyone intended for this 
stuff to happen or no. intends for this stuff to happen. But I think when you say, well, you know, Jim's not a gamer and Sally is. So clearly Sally's ideas are going to be better. Um, that you right. run into problems with that uh, again, especially if you don't actually understand deeply what it means to be a gamer and what impact specifically you think it should have that Sally is a gamer. Yes. Like you, if you don't, if those things are abroad or open or open to interpretation, like you got to be really careful about that because then it becomes a label and that's the only thing it is really functioning as day to day as a label. So I think where Ben and I land on this, and we've talked about this a lot, is we don't care if you're a gamer or not. We do care, back to the original point, that everyone in your organization seeks to maintain a meaningful and impactful relationship with the product and with the audience. Yes. And part of what we talk about when we talk about holistic leadership is product thinking. Like, I don't feel like there should be this, like, shadowy cadre of product managers at the organization who are the only ones who think about audience expectations exactly. or what the players want or whatever. Like I think everyone should be engaging on and, that wavelength. And in game dev, we have that, we already have that in space. Cause again, the majority of people in game dev are yeah. gamers and would self-identify in that. And that's one of the reasons they became game developers. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I agree. You don't have to be connection to the audience, connection to the player aware what is the experience we're trying to create what's the vision for this can i give feedback about it because if you can't you're not as useful of a team member if if you're just like i don't care i just code i don't really care how it all turns out it's like you can't do that i had actually an engineer on a product he was doing something very technically complex and it's spent months and months and months building it and was having trouble getting it to work because it was a very complicated thing involving textures and memory and moving things around at all the right points. And it turned out it was a non-functional idea from the get-go. And had he known that because he played the game, it didn't need him to be a gamer. I needed him to play the game and watch how the game was played and try to keep that connection to the audience. We could have saved months and months and months of that person's effort. Um, and so this is what I would say. Even if you're not a gamer, if you're working on games, you should be playing the game at least you're working on and probably aware of some of the games that are around it. Yeah. I'm not telling you to go spend, you know, 20 hours a week or 40 hours a week playing games when you're not working. No. Participate in playtests and spend a little bit more time just trying to understand what is this audience, what do they care about? Because it's going to help you in your decisions. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think where I'm on the same page as you 100% is like, I wouldn't say you do need to spend 40 hours a month playing or you don't need to spend 40 hours a month playing. I don't care, actually. Yeah. Um, no. What I care about is, again, the impact, back to your point, the impact you have on the team and that you have on the product. Like, we can look at the example you just gave, the story you just told and be like, that is a bad outcome. Right. Oh my gosh. So let's terrible. not have that. How it much almost, do it you, almost doomed the project? Yeah. Actually. How much do you need to engage with the product to not have that happen again? Right. And yeah. then there's an opportunity cost uh, as well. And then there's an op there's a set of opportunities. Like the more you play or the more you engage, the deeper your understanding becomes. The better decisions you'll make. Everything has diminishing returns, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not about whether you're a gamer or not, or whether you play 40 hours a month of games or zero hours a month of games, it's about like, again, do you have an understanding, whatever that means to your team and for your company, of the product and of your players? Right. That's all that matters. Like like set a standard there and, and build some principles around that and then diff your actions against those goals that you have. Um, right, and that, it, that's what matters. And I, I, this is actually one I don't know. We, I don't know if we've talked about this, but if you had like an HR department or a personnel department, whatever, um, they're they're an internally focused, internally serving entity, ideally, and they're focused on supporting the people inside an organization, ideally, right? Um, if they don't play games, I'm actually not as worried about that. Um, like if you're a game company, but you have an HR department and the HR people don't play games, would they 
their because their audience is the employee. Their customer, to some extent, is the employee. And they should be engaging with and connecting with and trying to understand how do I best serve this group? Mm-hmm. And and like that's actually behind everything. It's not that everybody, you know, I don't if you're working on a game, if you're directly working on a game, or you're even doing publishing for a game or something like that, be aware of that game. Be aware of that audience. Um, be aware of what's around it as best you can. Play tests at your company help you do that. But if they if they're not available, find ways to be engaging with who you think your audience is going to be and understanding what they care about. Um, because even if you're just like, oh, I'm just like I said, I'm just an engineer, I'm just an artist, I just draw great pictures, you know, I do great concept art. If you know what's out there, it's going to help you. It's going to help you in little ways you don't understand when you don't know. Um, recognize that you're not just someone who produces stuff, who produces work. You're also yeah. You're also like an intelligent person. You're a you're a thinker. You're a unique perspective. You're a creative mind. And if you don't bring that to your team, your team is at a loss um, compared to if you were able to bring that. Exactly. And and again, those are experiences. Those are decisions. Those are determinations that are upstream by nature. Like if you play the game a lot and you understand that these four things are actually more important than these other four things which we've been working on, and you can enact meaningful change on your team because of that realization, you've saved an immense amount of time. Because if you can stop a bunch of work that hasn't started yet from starting. So good. The, the the saving there's infinite savings on that potentially yeah so that that's the power of of this stuff you know what i mean yeah. there is a practical element to this and there's ben and i work with a lot of organizations we've seen this many times a lot of companies incentivize leadership incentivizes people to quote unquote uh stay in their lane and focus on their craft and build their thing and mm-hmm. not worry about like don't I don't want you like wasting a bunch of time playing games. Just build build stuff, finish the work, get the sprint done, right. do all this. And again, it's all well intentioned. But if you are a leader and you see that your organization is actively incentivizing people to not regularly engage with the product and not regularly engage with the audience, I would challenge that because the cost, whatever you think your struggles are during development. And the cost savings you're think about thinking about within development, your cost savings will be n squared if you can get your team to select better things to work on and yes. get people more aligned on what actually matters in the product. Yes, and that means, and and maybe we can close off with a bit on leadership. Um, how so? We've talked a lot about the individual developer, the organization, the team. Like, how do leaders impact this? I think you just called out the big one. Um, it is through encouraging that engagement, mm-hmm. um, modeling that engagement. When someone comes up and says, I'm not sure this is valuable work, you know, in a meeting where we're just supposed to be talking about how it's all going, how's all the stuff going? And instead <clears throat> saying like, I'm not sure this is actually going to have the value we want. Call that out, encourage that. Say like, you're, you are happy that they did that. Talk to that person. Maybe you don't do it in that meeting. Maybe you pull them aside after. But whatever it might be, like you're engaging with that because those are the things that you want people focused on. Seriously, and- everybody has at least one damn hour of meetings in a week that they secretly know that they hate and everyone on their team hates. So just stop going to that meeting and instead <laughs> sit at your computer and play or sit at your console and play a game that's like the game you're making that's from another company but really popular and play that game as a whole team for an hour and then talk about it for 15 minutes afterwards. Done. Like you have the time to do this. Yes. <laughs> There's no, no and, way you don't. And, and as a leader, give people that time. Yeah. Value that time. Value those Make interactions. Make it exciting. Make it fun. You know? Yeah. And create the vision. Yeah. This is what our product is. Um, I'm not saying you always need to like diff it versus other products, but like, hey, there's other products and they do these things well. This is what our product's going to do well. And, you know, this is where we think we win. This is the field we're going for. So when you go to play test, we want to know how was it? How did it feel? All these things. And, um, you know, so much of that, as you said, with the sort of the, the, 
the scientists, the PhDs that we we hired at Riot back in the day, um, is about actually what do people do, not what do they say. Mm-hmm. But your game developers um, care about the game, spend time on it, and leaders encourage that. Do not, you know, it was so funny when I came to uh, when I came to Riot out of the military because at the military you always needed to look like you were busy, and at Riot. Um, sometimes to the point where actually people were like, hey, maybe it's too far on this team. Like they're playing like four games a day um, and maybe not doing any work. Uh, but that was very uncommon. But it, it was so common to see people playing games and not just the games they were working on, other games. And it was like, that's okay. Because we want people who know, who are understanding of our audience and are out there playing the same games that those that our players are playing and getting ideas and, and capitalizing on that. And I, like, yes, you can go to the extreme where someone, you know, spends 40 hours a week playing games at work instead of working, and that's not okay. But if your team is getting their work done um, and and they're focused on the right things and they're contributing to the value conversation <clears throat> and they also happen to spend some time playing games, I don't care if they're playing two hours of games a day. As Again, as long as we're moving forward and that's allowing us to constantly be refining down what we need to do to deliver the maximum value. Um, so encur- I, I think as leaders, we in, in the game space, we need to encourage that. Um, and we need to be careful whenever we're pushing people towards just get the work done, just get more stuff done. No, you need to code more. No, you need to do more art. Um, it's, it's not how creativity works to some extent. And we're actually hamstringing ourselves because we don't get to take advantage of the full creative potential of our team. So thanks for joining us uh, on Building Better Games. Today we talked a lot about just staying in touch with your game. What does it mean to have a uh, your organization engaging with the product, uh, your team engaging with the product, and aware of the audience? Um, we talked about that a lot through the lens of playtests. What's a healthy mentality to have around playtests? What are they for? What are some of the excuses why people don't like to do them? Um, and also then talked a little bit about the individual uh, and the important, like, you know, what is it that they are accountable for and how do you as a leader relate to those people on your team? Thanks for listening to Building Better Games with Aaron and Ben. If you have comments, questions, or would like to work with Ben and Aaron, shoot an email to info at That's info at V-A-L-A-R-I-N consulting.com. Please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Valarin Inc. We'll catch you next time.